infancy go to heaven, I suggested a reference and just seven words of an answer. Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is perfect. Now, the text goes on to say, the word of the Lord proves true, and he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So our faith in the perfection of God offers two arguments to point us toward hope. One, we studied last time, and we'll finish that this week, uh, hope in God's words. Second, hope in God himself. Because the text says, the word of the Lord proves true. So it's imperative that we know what God has said and find hope in his words. And then hope in God himself. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. If you've been in the situation of this kind of loss, uh, you would recognize um, by that experience the need for refuge, the longing for uh, even answers, for comfort. Um, and, and that answer and comfort uh, may not be exactly what we think we need, but the reality is the answer and comfort is God is a refuge. So let's step back and review the first part of the answer, hope in God's words. The word of the Lord proves true. In this point, we suggested phrasing it this way, the hope of babies going to heaven is consistent with what God has said. We acknowledge the Bible doesn't tackle this head on with a clear paragraph or verse that tells us the exact answer. So we're left to do some study, and when we do that, we see that our, what we might think is the instinctive hope that babies go to heaven is consistent with what God has said. Um, we looked at the idea of lacking capacity for understanding and how this provokes some thought on the matter. Romans 1, 18 to 20 reminded us that things clearly perceived produces the conclusion of being without excuse. So we've reasoned backwards to think, well, what if there is no ability to clearly perceive what God intentionally revealed for the purpose of establishing the guilt of all mankind? Um, we looked at John 9 and the man born blind and Jesus' interesting statement that if you were truly ignorant or blind to God's revelation, you would have no guilt. It's because you are not ignorant. He's, he's saying that in the general principle of humanity, there is no ignorance of God, because Romans 1 says God has revealed himself as the creator of all things. So then we, we leaned into that statement, it's because you are not ignorant, you are willfully unbelieving that you stand guilty before God. And it just... It provokes thought, at the very least, regarding those who lack capacity for understanding, uh, who perhaps may be ignorant um, and not willfully unbelieving, yet though still sinful by nature. We considered condemnation being based on rejection. John chapter 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Uh, Luke 10, Isaiah 7, um, just put a heavy emphasis on the, the rejection of sinners uh, condemned because they do not believe in the only begotten Son of God. 
Let's add a few thoughts this week uh, regarding God's words, and then we'll look at God himself. Uh, There's some kingdom verses that I want us to look at. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Just hear these verses. They're familiar. Again, you cannot go to these verses and, and I feel at least dogmatically prove an answer. All you can do is find a consistency with this hope that we have of children that die in infancy uh, would go to heaven. In Matthew 18, we read this in verse 1 and following. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The emphasis here is not that we're childish. We're supposed to mature. We're supposed to grow in our thinking and our understanding, especially of spiritual things. The emphasis here is on really the essence of faith. We, we, like a child, realize we can't do this ourselves. We can't escape our sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves good enough to go to heaven. But with the simple trust of a child, we trust that God has provided a way. He, he, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. Uh, to forgive our sin. And so we say, I don't want my sin. I, I, I'll trust Jesus. He'll get me to heaven. So it's that kind of simple trust that's being highlighted here. We know this account, but we're trying to understand this idea of one of these children being set right in the midst of this conversation and Jesus saying, it's, it's these. It's ones like these that will receive the kingdom. You need this kind of faith. Here, the emphasis is faith. We'll add a few thoughts here. The next chapter, 19, verses 13 and 14. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Again, we... If this were all the scripture we had on the matter, we'd have to say, well, it... It's not saying those children go to heaven. It just says, of such. To these belong the kingdom, but maybe with the full teaching that he gave in that moment, as we saw in chapter 18, it's to such that have that kind of childlike faith. We could argue that from 19, um, but it is interesting that in a similar text now, he says, let the children come, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to add a parallel passage to this to just throw in another little nuance of thought. So Mark 10 mentions the similar account, and we want to look at Luke 18. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have this perspective. Sometimes they were there, um, and they kind of took in what they heard and wrote it down as kind of an eyewitness account. Somebody else may have written down something else they heard, and so we have all these different perspectives, sometimes on the very same account. In Luke chapter 18, in verse 15, 
It's a different word than children, although sometimes in the Greek these words can be interchangeable. But in the ESV, the text says it this way, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now the word infants could be what we would think of as even toddlers, if indeed Jesus is calling them to him saying, let them come, but still picture the toddlers from the, you know, twos and threes, and Jesus saying, to them belongs the kingdom. Uh, It just makes us think, what was Jesus saying there? And I'm not going to tell you that he was saying, dogmatically, they automatically go to heaven. I'm just saying it's consistent with this hope that Our minds can't figure this out, but it it feels right to us that those kids go to heaven. All we can argue, at least I'm saying to you, is that the Bible is consistent with that hope that we have. Now, one last text before we really get to our hope. 2 Samuel 12. Turn back to the Old Testament. This is the life of David. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. She announces that she's pregnant. David decides to cover it up by telling the commander of his army to put her husband on the front line so that surely he'll die in battle. Uh, And that happens. So David arranged for a certain death of her husband. Well, you remember the story, Nathan the prophet confronts David first through the story a parable that he tells, which makes David really angry um, at the the guy in the story. And then Nathan points his finger at David and says, you are the man in that story. David, if you read Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, you you can just see his house, this facade of covering up his sin just comes crumbling down. Uh, And in a a good way, it produces, in that moment of guilt and shame and conviction, it it produces a godly sorrow, a repentance, a recognition that he has sinned against God, he's contributed to the death of someone, uh, he's committed adultery, and he confesses all of this to God. And yet, uh, as a consequence... In this sin, God does not have that child that was conceived live um, beyond infancy. And so that's where our story is unfolding in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Let me just be clear here that if you've lost a child, this text isn't announcing that because you lost a child, it's because of your sin. Now, death is because of sin. That's from the Garden of Eden. But we're not arguing by using this story that the death of your child was punishment for your sin. Uh, In this case, that's the way God worked it out. 
Um, but, but we don't establish this as the norm that when somebody we love dies, it must be because I did something wrong. Um, I think a full reading of Scripture will reveal that is that's not the way that God works. It's not a punitive, uh, uh, retribution um, kind of punishment. Uh, but in this case, God has allowed for that child to die. Uh, so we see in verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child who had become sick. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Some of you had kids in the hospital. And you know what it is to just sit by that bed and watch machines and beeps and doctors and nurses in and out. And you're just hoping, praying for the best. And when people say, hey, you should go home and get some rest. You're like, no way. Hey, you need to eat something. No, I I need to be here. Well, that's exactly what we see. This is typical parenting in the text. So he's laying on the ground. He's begging God for the life of this child. Verse 16, he's fasting. He's not eating anything. Verse 17, the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So a whole week goes by of David not doing anything but asking God to be merciful. On the seventh day, the child dies, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They're looking at this saying, Man, that guy was in a bad place even when his child was alive. What's going to happen when we tell him the child died? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he was asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. In their minds, it was backwards. They're thinking, well, it seems like now that he's dead, you would really come unglued with sorrow and mourning. But now David is going to explain the, let's call it the peace that he had. I think you can imagine there was still heartache and sorrow, probably still battles with guilt and, and, and such. But the reality is there is, a, there is a peace that has settled on David so that he, he's, he's not needing to be helped up off the ground. He's asking for food. He's washed. He's anointed himself. That would be, you know, like cleaning up. And, you know, when you hear of this kind of anointing, you know, slick the hair down a little bit so you don't look like a frazzled mess. And so he's, he's kind of back to what we would say normal in presenting himself. He sits down and he's eating and the servants are taking this in thinking we don't understand. And David gives his answer in verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows 
whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Now, when we hear that because of David's sin, the child is going to die, we think, oh, what kind of God would do this? But know that that's not what David was thinking. Because David's saying, even though the child was sick and I was told he was going to die, I felt it completely reasonable to go to the God that I know and ask him to be gracious and change his mind, to spare this child. So David knew God was full of mercy and was gracious and had no problems, even though he had sinned and heard the consequence, saying, I'm going to appeal to the grace of God. So there's insight there into even what David would have thought of God in the loss of his child. He was thinking, God is good, and I'm going to appeal to him. His argument is, while the child was alive, I was going to do everything in, in my knowledge to appeal to the grace of God, that the child may live. Verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. So it's interesting here. We get a glimpse into the mind of David that went from absolute sorrow, desperate praying to God on behalf of this child who was dying. The child dies and David gets up and cleans himself up, presents himself well, and in through the sorrow, is moving on, taking steps forward. Life is going on, and he makes this declaration of understanding life, death, and what comes after. And he does so by saying, there's nothing I can do in grief or in fasting or in sorrow that will bring that child back to life. He has left the realm of the living and has died. And his conclusion is, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, scholars used to question, well, maybe the Old Testament saints didn't understand the afterlife. They didn't understand thoughts of being with the Lord or heaven. So they maybe David just meant, well... I'll just go to the grave and join him in the grave, in death, generally speaking. But all you have to do is read David's Psalms, uh, and you'll understand that they understood that there was life beyond the struggles in this world. Uh, read the other Old Testament prophets, and, and they speak, Daniel uh, especially, and they speak of life in heaven with God. So, David is not just saying, well, I can't bring him back. We're all just going to die. And he comforted his wife with those words. No, that makes no sense. David was saying that child lived and struggled and died early as it was, causing much sorrow. But now that that child is gone, I have to understand there, there's only one possible way of reunion, and that's for me to live out my struggle and die, and I will go and be with him. But he's not coming back to us. Well, that whole story 
and the way the scriptures add there that with that comfort that took David off the floor and back into the realm of the living, so to speak, and that same comfort that he used to comfort his wife Bathsheba, that reveals to us something here about our question, do these infants or children who die in infancy go to heaven? And this text really makes us think about this because David's comfort that he used for himself and for his wife was he's not coming back to us in this life. We'll join him in the next. For some, this is absolute conclusive proof uh, that children who die in infancy go to heaven. Uh, and it may be for you, and, and that's, that's the Holy Spirit's work in your heart in wrestling with the truth of Scripture. Um, I'm still comfortable saying this, this is a powerful text that's going to make you think more than any of the other arguments um, of why we can be comforted at the death of a child based on David's words. Um, I would still say uh, with absolute kind of heart and confidence that our hope that children who die in infancy go to heaven is consistent with what we see in Scripture. Albeit, there are still those challenges of the sin nature. When and how do they call on the name of the Lord to be saved, since that is the only way? How in, how in God's mercy does he make provision for that? And, and the answers are, I don't know. So we find hope in God's words. There's something there that makes us think this could be the way it is. They, they may go to heaven. But we are not stating an absolute doctrine of some age of accountability or responsibility. I'm simply saying that there are scriptures that seem to fuel our hope that babies go to heaven. To which you might say, well, I was hoping for more than that. Well... Let me give you more than that. You see, our first argument was, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. So we go to the word and we glean these things and we think it might lead us down the path of, yes, they do. But if we want more than that, then we need to go to the second part of the verse. He is a refuge to those who run to him. So... Our, our, our greater hope is the hope in God's character. John Calvin, at the death of his son at two weeks old, said, God have pity on us. God has dealt us a heavy blow by the death of our son, but he is our father and he knows what is good for his children. The great theologian, in the classroom, the great theologian in the pulpit was a great theologian at the bedside of his wife who had given birth to a sickly son who then died. He was a great theologian at the cemetery. You see, that's why, that's why theology matters. We have to believe that God is a refuge today because you don't know what tomorrow's crisis will be when you need that refuge. You can't, you can't fall apart in the moment. You need the truth of God's word and the hope in God's character. 
Calvin was right, to turn sorrow and heaviness on that one transitional word, but God is our Father, and He does what is good for His children. Our hope of babies going to heaven must be secondary to our hope in the character of God. Remember Psalm 1830, He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. More than answering your heart's deepest question about where your children are, more than that, God wants you to trust him. He doesn't need you to have the answers. He has them. He needs you to trust him because he knows that's what's best for you. He doesn't need you to be more independent and more secure in the way you figured it out and the answers you have. He needs and wants you to trust him. And so... We must understand the refuge of God. As for God, his way is perfect. He's perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly merciful. You can take refuge in him. You can know the rest, the the peace that comes by being sheltered. When your kids are little and they get in a strange place, they come running to you and they want to just hide their face, even if it's just in your shoulder and not look around them. You know, that misconception that because they can't see all the problems, they're not there. It's okay. But they found a refuge. And that's what God is to us. Abraham asked a question in the context of life and death. In God's sparing or judging It's back in Genesis 18. God was going to destroy the wicked cities. And Abraham's thinking, well, surely there's some righteous people there. Like, you wouldn't destroy a city with righteous people. What if there were like 100 people? And and he works the number all the way down, and God keeps displaying his mercy. And and Abraham, in, in a sense, trying to argue God into being merciful, which was folly, makes this argument to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked do. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What's the answer to that question? Of course he will. But Abraham was trying to leverage like justice against God to make him spare the city if there were righteous people there. But God was going to do what is just. Abraham was arguing, but he used a question that should have silenced him as well. God will do what he does, and what God does is always right. Our only concept of rightness or wrongness is because there is God. If somebody stole your car from the parking lot or stole your phone from your office desk or committed some other crime to you, you would have this sense of that's not right. Well, where does that come from? Right only exists because of the character of God. Abraham asked this question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right or do what is just? And the answer is, of course he will. Until you experience the miscarriage and the devil comes whispering in your ear, what kind of God would let that happen? 
twice, three times, four times. And then we start asking, will the judge of all the earth get it right? Has he gotten it right here? And we start to wonder. Psalm 18 is saying, no, God is a refuge. And you run there, not looking for answers, but looking for refuge from the bombardment even of your own mind. Jonah would have answered Abraham's question. His message to the city of Nineveh was five simple words. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what he was called to announce to Nineveh. Tell them salvation is of the Lord. But know what's interesting about this one four-chapter story of Jonah? That is one message. Salvation is of the Lord. That book ends with the language or at least the question in our minds of the innocence of the younger, unbelieving kids in Nineveh. The Lord says to Jonah at the end of the chapter 4, after Jonah was mad because the plant that God caused to grow up to give him some shade withered up and died, and now he's back in the sun. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. One of the weirdest endings of a book of the Bible. Somehow much cattle and 120,000 little ones that don't even know their left hand from their right were, trying, were used against Jonah to help him understand something about the compassion of the Lord. Jonah, you pity a plant? that grew in one day and died the next, even though you didn't make it, you didn't labor for it, and yet I made these people and have labored on their behalf? Should I not pity those, these little ones, these 120,000 who can't tell their left from their right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not God have pity? We put these questions together and, and we're beginning to understand that my refuge may not be in exact answers or knowledge, but they must be in the character of God. There's a passage in James chapter 5 where we read this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness or patience of who? Job. The patience of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's an interesting verse. You've heard of the patience of Job, and you have. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, now that, that makes us think, because we have seen the purpose of the Lord unfold in the details of our lives, but we have not always understood the purpose of the Lord. It's not always self-evident. We, we don't always get the reasons for why our life has turned out the way it has. But we do know this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
In other words, we may not understand what's going on, but we know who God is. He is compassionate and merciful. We could go to the book of Job. Job 40 is one of these moments where where Job is is done. He's packing up his arguments. He's done trying to figure out God's ways, and he's just going to trust the Lord. So, So he surrenders, and he just lets God have his last closing argument, so to speak, where he just buries Job with all these questions that humble him so that he clearly sees he is not God. And God indeed is. Job 42, same thing. Job, I repent in sackcloth and ashes for thinking that I should be entitled to answers, that I would have the right answers, that I would question God. At the end of Job, he just, he's literally has his hand on his mouth like, I'm not saying another word. I've seen who God is, and I can trust this God. Well, that story... Job's suffering and coming to the conclusion that I might not figure it out, I'm going to trust this God, is what James is talking about when he says, blessed are those who are steadfast. You've seen that steadfast endurance or patience of Job. Well, the patience of Job was not, he was really good at waiting. No, here's what the patience of Job means. My faith in God's character must go beyond my understanding of God's ways. That's the endurance, the patience of Job. Something lasted, and it wasn't his willpower because he's twiddling his thumbs in a waiting room. No, what lasted was his faith in God's character. It just kept going. So here's Job. He starts suffering, 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 and and he's trusting God, but he's trying to figure out why is this happening I don't think I deserve this. This doesn't seem right. His understanding runs out right here, but his faith in God's character just keeps going. You've heard of the patience of Job. He couldn't figure it out. His understanding ran out a long time ago, but his faith just kept on going. That's the patience of Job. Whatever God does with the lives of our children is right. Our hope must not rest in knowing the eternal state of our children, but in knowing the eternal perfection of God. Because, let's face it, we're all in the same boat, not because we've lost children in infancy and question where will they spend eternity, but for many of the others, it's because you have children who are living out their lives, and you might still, throughout your life, have questions about their eternal state. And your hope has to be in the judge of all the earth who gets it right, in the Lord who is salvation, in God who is compassionate and merciful. Whatever God does in the lives of our children is right. And maybe in in moments of lesser turmoil, we can work to establish the theological foundations of this argument so that in those depths of emotional swirling storms, what we have to stand on is this bedrock truth. As for God, his way is perfect. His word proves true, and I'm going to run to him for refuge. Because like Job, my understanding has run out. My emotions can't handle it. All I have left is my confidence in the character of God.
Let me add uh, two appendices here. Appendix number one, parental responsibility. At some point in our reckoning with this concept of children at their young age, when would they become accountable or responsible if we want to use that language? Uh, Or a child that's disabled. Well, how disabled is too disabled to understand? At some point, there's cloud. There's confusion. We don't have clarity. You may not know if there is sufficient ability to understand the truth of the gospel. I would say Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy 6 will still give you your marching orders. You still bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your words may be wasted. They may not be understood or comprehended. But you simply do what God has asked parents to do. I've seen parents read the scriptures about salvation being found in the Lord to infants in ICU. Why? Because they just know the word is quick and powerful. God brings about faith through his word. How does that work for a kid who doesn't speak English yet? We don't know. But they were just trusting that this is what God asked them to do. Give God's truth to their kids. And so parental responsibility is there. Nurture your children and teach them the truth that they're accountable to the God who created them. Parental responsibility just never goes away. Oh, it may seem obvious that there's no real fruit that could come of that, but I would simply ask, how do we know that? How do we know? So if there's ever any question, if somebody were to say to you, well, I don't even think my child is capable of understanding, just say, well, listen, all you know is that God said, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Show them God's love by your life and show them God's love in his word. Appendix number two, a few resources. Just a couple years back, there was a great resource that came out. The moon is always round. Anybody seen this book? I think some of you have. Um, Because I think I offered it to someone once and recently, and they had it already. The moon is always round. Uh, Great book, well, for adults, but it's designed really for parents to help the other children in the family even understand uh, miscarriage or the loss of a child. Uh, And and the argument is the moon is always round. Now, Now, sometimes because of its location, you know, it's blocked by the earth and we only see a little sliver of it. And the, the argument unfolds that circumstances may cloud and block the character of God, but we should know that God is faithful and true and his way is perfect just like the moon is always round. For disability, just the way I am, beautiful book. Uh, If you know someone that has a a child, it'd be a great book to have as a simple tool to understand uh, God is at work in the creation of even the disabled. Uh, And then just this this year, uh, a companion set of books came out. Both of them are 31 short little readings, like a page or two in these books. Um, This one is called Held, 31 Biblical Reflections on God's Comfort and Care in the Sorrow of Miscarriage. Uh, This one designed for 
wives to read. Ours, uh, the companion book, Biblical Comfort for Men Grieving Miscarriage. Um, I read a couple of these and have never tasted the sorrow of miscarriage. I was overwhelmed by the power of faith in, in people anchored in God's word in seasons of sorrow. Uh, beautiful volumes. Uh, I have a couple here. I would gladly put them in your hands. You can come and get them. Uh, I have more if, if they could be a help. I offer them with one friendly condition, all right? Um, one, having read them, I would love to sit down and talk with you and, and get your thoughts on, on how it ministered to you so that we could better shape a plan to minister to those in our body that will suffer through miscarriage. Um, handing them a book could be great, um, but I want us to think a little bit more intentionally uh, about that season of sorrow that many have walked through. So while the books on the back table in the lobby aren't for taking, these are, uh, and if you don't race fast enough to get them, let me know and I'd be glad to uh, get some more of those for you. Uh, there are other resources, but those were, uh, I was just fascinated by the starkness of truth and yet its power to comfort us in our, in our deepest grief. Second Corinthians 2, the God of all comfort comforts us, uh, and he does that with his truth. So as we wrestle through this question, uh, know that there is a depth of study that is warranted by the depth of sorrow. We don't do anybody any favors by being shallow in our theology and being sentimental or, or emotional in the sense of our answers. So study deeply. And as you do, uh, realize this. You don't need the exact answers that would address all of our sorrows in this life, especially the sorrow of losing a child. What we need most is faith in the refuge of our God. Wrestle with the scriptures and come to the conclusion that as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a refuge to all those who seek him. Heavenly Father, minister to each one here who knows the weight of this question that we've examined who even still, years now past, can look back with sorrow on that life that was never realized fully as we think of it, the sorrow of that loss. Comfort them with the promises of your word and the faithfulness of your character. Make us people who know something of the patience, the steadfastness of Job, who, though lacking understanding, will not falter in faith. Help us to be the kind of friends and family members that know how to comfort each other in our seasons of sorrow. Equip us with these two weeks of thinking and study to be better messengers of truth to those who desperately need it. We're thankful for the comfort that we have in you. Uh, may it Bring fruit even from this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for thinking this through. Come.
at least take a look at these books if you or anyone else you know could be helped by them.